0: Just a a good chance to spend time praying as well before we enter into God's Word. Hopefully we don't glaze over that too quickly, that um, coming before God's Word is a very serious matter. It's not just a book that we could pick up like any other book in this world. It's God's Word revealed to us, spoken to us, as Pastor Dave preached on the very first Sunday in this series that we've been going through on the non-negotiable absolutes. Hopefully you've been enjoying this series as much as I have. It's been one of those series that, you know, even as a pastor, it's challenged me, it's enriched my faith, it's refreshed me. I'm still chewing on a statement that Pastor Dave made early on in this this series where he, he challenged us to consider that God created us so that he might love us. It's a simple statement, yet I feel like as I think about it, as I contemplate it, as I consider it, it's pretty profound actually as well. Hopefully you have a similar experience where you yourself have been challenged, you've been refreshed in your faith, you've been enriched in your faith, and maybe you've been challenged by God through his word and through Pastor Dave leading us through this series. If you remember, the non-negotiable absolutes are the things that we believe in here at Trinity that we live and breathe by. They never change. We have traditions as a church, we, we have a history as a church that, that has traditions as part of its roots, and, and those traditions are, 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 they change kind of gradually, slowly over time, but, but they don't change very frequently and they don't change very quickly either. We also have, have needs, and that's, I mean, you can, you, as you look at the world around you, you recognize needs, right, and how quickly they change. They change actually more quickly now than they did even 10, 15 years ago. We look at the needs of our culture. We look at the needs of our world, and, and you know what? The people of the church... The people of Trinity, they make up part of the culture as well. So you could understand how the needs of our church change every so often as well. And then, of course, the most rapidly changing thing are the programs, right? Because they change frequently to meet the needs of the church, of Trinity. And yet, in all of that, the things that never change are these non-negotiable absolutes we've been looking at. This morning, I want to challenge us to look at how the church is a non-negotiable absolute for us here at Trinity. I think what we're going to find out is that we need each other. We are better together as we join the body of Christ together as a church. But before we do get into considering how the church is a non-negotiable absolute, I want to just take us for a few minutes through this word church, right? Because um, it's kind of a broad word. In fact, the, the, the word in, in Greek that the, that the New Testament writers use is ecclesia. And this word Ecclesia basically just means assembly. It's like a gathering. I mean, the PTA is is a gathering, is an assembly. The the Cub Scouts are are an assembly. The the, the Rotary Club is is an assembly. The the Greek word Ecclesia does not necessarily define church for us. It, It certainly does tell us that it's an assembly of sorts, but it doesn't tell us that it's necessarily primarily or, or uh, especially a, a religious or Christian word, right? And so when we look at it, I think we could start with its meaning, but I also think we need to consider how it's used elsewhere. Because I think as, as you look in the New Testament, as you consider this idea of the church, even when that word is not used, I think we see New Testament writers referring to this church, to to the church not necessarily using the word ecclesia, but referring to the church in the Bible. You know, if you think about Paul, when he speaks in Ephesians chapter 4 and he writes to the church in Ephesus, and he talks about building up the body of Christ, that we're members of one another. John speaks of the marriage supper between the lamb and its bride. And in each of these circumstances, I'm pretty sure, I'm confident that the church is in view, even without using this word ecclesia. See, what makes Ecclesia particular to the Christian church is that it's an assembly that's particularly gathered around Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Ecclesia referred to the congregation of Israel as a gathered together for worship. Now, you know, it sounds funny that you would say Greek word described what was happening in the Old Testament, but this Greek word was used to describe the, the Old Testament uh, scriptures when the Septuagint was translated. So the Septuagint it was, is a Greek translation of the Old Testament by these 70 priests. And as they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they determined that ecclesia was the most appropriate word to describe the times that Israel gathered together for worship, for sacrifice, to come before the Lord. And then in the New Testament, we we see this word mainly used as as a, a reference to the people of God gathering together to worship him. So, church, are we talking about Trinity Baptist Church at 300 North Benson Road in Fairfield, Connecticut? Are we talking about any of the other buildings in this town that have church on the sign out front? Maybe we're talking about the location of a specific church that's addressed in the Bible. You know, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, John writes uh, a letter, or he, he's instructed to write a letter to seven different churches. Let me read just a couple of verses just so we get a flavor for it. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So I wonder, do, do the words here that the Lord speaks to John mean that there's more than one church? Are, are there many churches? Well, let me give you a, a simple but straightforward answer. You're going to tell me I'm not doing my job if I give you. But the simple answer is yes and no. Shall we pray? (laughs) Simply put, these individual local churches, these local bodies, of these local assemblies, are actually part of a larger church, a universal church, a a church unified through Jesus Christ alone. See, they're unified around Jesus Christ who came as the Son of Man, born in the form of man, Bearing the weight of the world's sins on his shoulder, died on the cross, defeated death and rose from the grave three days later, offering new life to his church, offering a new covenant to the people of God, gathered around him, trusting in him for righteousness and not themselves. See, each of these congregations were, were local assemblies of the universal church that centered around Jesus. And so we believe here at Trinity that, that Trinity is a local assembly of a universal body of Christ. That, that we share an origin, we share a history, and we share a future with the churches that, that maybe John and Paul spoke about and Paul wrote letters to in the New Testament. See, at Trinity, it's a non-negotiable absolute that we are a part of this universal assembly of believers in Jesus Christ. To help us understand what I, what I mean by this, I'd like us to look at a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. I encourage you to take out your Bibles from the chair in front of you. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 16 and, and just keep the Bible that you have open in front of you. We're going to look at a couple other passages throughout our time together, but those will be on the screen as well. So you could stay with Matthew 16 in the back of your mind as we, as we walk through this passage. This will be our, our passage that we're aiming to, to walk through today. I'm going to read verses uh, 13 through 20 for us. In Matthew chapter 16, hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, See, I think the first thing that we can learn this morning as we look at this passage and as we learn from Jesus and his disciples is that the church begins with and is built upon Jesus. My son Max, he loves to build with Legos. He's a big Lego fan. In fact, um, it's amazing to me to, to think that when he's got other kids around, he's happy to sit at a table and just work on a Lego kit, a Lego set. And uh, this past birthday, he had received a whole bunch of different sets for, of Legos from his buddies that, that came to his party. And, and what I realized as he opened these different sets is they all had one thing in common. A- every Lego set, as he opened up the instructions, every Lego set began with one piece. Whether it was a race car, or a robot, or a space shuttle, each Lego set began with one piece. One piece in it. And so it is with the church. I believe that the church all begins with one piece a foundation. As Jesus and his disciples enter into the region of Caesarea, he poses this question of his disciples. He says, who do the people say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Son of Man is Jesus's favorite reference for himself in the Bible, by the way. He was probably referencing the dream that Daniel has back in the Old Testament book of Daniel, when Daniel recalls his dream. In fact, let me read it for us. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Feel free to stay on in Matthew 16, your Bibles. It'll be on the screen for us. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You you, you read these verses and it sounds a little bit similar to our passage in Matthew 16, right? Daniel expected a savior like a son of man. The son of man being the the reference that Jesus asked his disciples, uh, who do people say that the son of man is? He asks the the question of of his disciples, and and the disciples really, they just record what the responses are. The the, the disciples hear the people talking with with many flattering options. Some say John the Baptist, or or maybe Elijah, or, or maybe Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. These are all very kind and flattering options, but you know, the reality is none of these options are adequate enough to describe Jesus. None of them give him enough credit for the power and, and, and the source of who he is and who he, he came to, to, to serve and to fulfill the promises of his Heavenly Father. In fact, John the Baptist admits this much when he's standing beside the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry when he first sees Jesus. You may remember from early on the Gospel of John in verse 29 through 30 in chapter 1. Uh John's standing there with his disciples along the the river, and he sees Jesus and his followers coming in, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. See, John already knew that Jesus was a greater man, a greater, the greater person than he ever would be, because he was also the Son of God. But Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is, and Peter speaks up as a representative of the twelve. Take a look uh, back in our passage in Matthew 16, and read verses 15 to 17 with me. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... See, Peter didn't have this knowledge because he was smarter than the rest of the disciples. He he didn't have this knowledge because he was more faithful than the rest of the disciples. In fact, he would be one of the disciples that denied Jesus three times on the night that he was betrayed. Peter didn't have this knowledge because because he was more crafty or, or, or cared more for Jesus than the other disciples. He knew who Jesus was because God revealed it to him of his own will. It wasn't Peter's own efforts, it wasn't Peter's own flesh and blood, it was God's will. It was a gift. And so we have to ask the question, why did it matter to Jesus in this moment that his disciples knew who he really was, what his true identity was? At any moment in his ministry, he could have revealed to his disciples, or the Father could have revealed to his disciples that he was the Son of God, the Christ But he chose this moment, so we have to ask why. You know what I think? I think because this son of man who would have everlasting dominion over his kingdom, this lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, this son of the living God would also be the very first piece of what we would become, or what we would be aware of as this universal assembly, this ecclesia of disciples of Jesus. A people for himself that that would make up every nation, every language, every tribe. Paul put it this way about Jesus in his letter to the church in Ephesus when when he referred to Jesus as the cornerstone of his church. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and prophets in Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, in Paul's time, the, the cornerstone was one of the most or was the most important piece of the structure of a building. It was that that first piece laid down that the rest of the building was built around, that, that determined the, the integrity of the structure. In the same way, Jesus became the most important person around which his church was built. I say we are we are one church, universally unified in Jesus Christ, because the church started with Jesus and was built upon him. It may be difficult to hear, but in our day and age, it's important for us to acknowledge this, that if a church isn't built upon this very crucial cornerstone, then it isn't a part of the church that Christ instituted, that he built, that he began, and that will remain until he returns. It's not a part of this universal church. If a church doesn't live and breathe the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, it isn't really a part of Jesus' church. This is why it's so important for Jesus' disciples to, to get this right now, to answer this question about who Jesus was. If he was just another smart teacher or kind person who went out of his way to care for the sick and the needy, well, then he would just be a great teacher or, or, or leader. This, would just be, uh, this assembly would just be another PTA or Rotary Club meeting. But, but if we can confess, if you can confess along with Peter and the apostles that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, then you too are, as Paul has said in Ephesians, no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and, with the saints and members of the household of God. And so if you're sitting here this morning and, and haven't yet made this confession, that's okay. I know the day is not done. But consider this, when we confess what Peter confessed, we confess that this Lamb of God carried all of our guilt and our shame to the cross. He carried everything to the cross for us. And he made it possible for us to no longer be orphans, but beloved children of God, a part of his family, a part of this universal assembly. That's the invitation that's before you today. That's the invitation that not Pastor Dan is proposing to you, but God is offering to you, to lay down your guilt and your shame at Jesus' feet and add the stone that's your life to his church. And if you do, recognize this. Recognize that this isn't a confession you make purely of your own ability, your own flesh and blood, but because God has revealed himself to you and his love to you in his son, Jesus Christ. So the church, it starts with Jesus, and it's built upon his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's, that's the first thing we learned from this passage of ours this morning, that the church is universally united because Jesus Christ is its foundation, its cornerstone. I think the second thing we learned from our passage here in Matthew chapter 16 is that the church is Apostolic. Now, apostolic sounds like a fancy theological word, but what it really means is that, that, that it was built on this ministry of the apostles. After Jesus formed the foundation of it, he sent forth his apostles with authority, with power, uh, with a purpose to build this church, to let it grow across time and geography. Maybe to understand what I mean, well, why don't we take a look back at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. Feel free to look at it in your Bibles on page 822. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Kind of sounds like the son of man's kingdom, that whose dominion will never end. But we've got to ask the question, what's this rock that Jesus will build his church on? See, I think there are some who have seen this as a reference to Peter and have made much of Peter in the world's eyes that have kind of based more of the religion around Peter than around what Jesus, I believe, is really saying here. See, I believe this rock is the confession that Peter makes and also the the work of the apostles to invite others to make the same confession. Sometimes when Jesus was in ministry with his disciples, he would actually directly and pointedly ask one of his disciples a question. He'd address them and kind of point out something to them. But that's not what he's doing here. See, the text tells us when Jesus asks the question of his disciples, he's asking to the group. There's a plural use of the word, who do you, plural, say that I am? So he's actually speaking to the group of disciples. And so when Peter speaks up, I believe he's speaking up as a representative of the group. He's speaking up almost as if to say, hey, we can't all answer this question at once, so let me be the first to say, this is who we believe you to be. So as a representative of the, the disciples, Jesus accepts this, question, or this answer. I think it's also important for us to, as we think about this question what is this rock, I think it's important for us to, to think about this, this passage in light of the other scriptures, in light of the rest of God's word. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of two builders, one who builds his house on a foundation of sand and one who builds his house on a rock foundation. Well, the wise person in this parable that Jesus is using is the, is the man, the builder, who builds his house on, on the rock, basically builds his life on the, on the teachings of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. The foolish person is the one who kind of disregards those teachings, disregards the life of Jesus and builds his life on the sand. No, Jesus is the rock. Jesus' life and teaching is the rock in that parable. As we mentioned before, Jesus has seen the New Testament as the cornerstone of the church. We sang that song before we came here to, to before God's word, right? I love that song. I love when we get to sing it together. It's almost a confession that that we are a church who acknowledges that we're built on the cornerstone of Jesus' life. The most important rock that the rest of the church is built around is Jesus Christ. So I don't think that Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock. I believe that Jesus is is, is affirming the confession that Peter makes and the work that the apostles will do on behalf of Jesus as he sends them out, as he commissions them. Take a look back at at verse 18 in our passage. Notice who the builder of the church is. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You may remember that that Jesus says this at the end of Matthew before he ascends to heaven. He tells his disciples, I'm sorry, not that he says this. You may remember what Jesus says at the end of Matthew when he's speaking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He tells his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus sends his disciples with his own authority to go and make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them and teach them to obey all of his teachings. But they don't do it in their own strength. They do it in the strength and the wisdom of the builder himself. The builder who has promised to be with them always to the very end of the age. See, this is why we read in the next verse of Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The authority to bind and loosen it, it is it's an interesting concept, right? I'm kind of wondering, what does this mean? What, what's going on here? What is Jesus really giving them authority to do? Well, you know, I think it might help us to, to think about how this is a little bit like the, ju- the judicial branch in our government, which is established not to, to create or enforce laws, but to, to interpret them and, and how, to, how do various laws apply in specific situations. See, I think we most clearly see this authority that Jesus gave to his apostles play out in Acts chapter 15. There's a situation going on in the early church when we come to Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas had been going around preaching the gospel, and and there becomes a clash between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. The Jewish believers were bothered that the Gentile believers were not following the same law, the Mosaic law, that they were. And so this conflict was was brought before the the apostles and the elders of the church in Acts 15. See, the the keys to the kingdom that Jesus had given them gave them authority to to listen in and to determine how the church would grow and build, right? The apostles' authority was not just for interpreting then how to apply Jesus' teaching. It was also an opportunity to be a witness for the good news, because what they deti- decided to loosen on earth and let loose in heaven, what they had bound on earth and would be bound in heaven, shaped how the church grew coming out of Acts 15. Luke records a, a similar commission to the apostles as-, as Matthew did in his gospel. I want us to just take a look at it briefly. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is speaking here when he says, "...but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem." and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the Holy Spirit empowered those first disciples, the, the apostles, to see that church built. And if you ever want to see what I mean, read the entire book of Acts from cover to cover. I know it, it's, it's 28 chapters, um, and it took the, the men's fellowship, square one men's fellowship, about a year and a half maybe to finish from cover to cover. Uh, but that's because we slowed down. We had fun. We had a good time going through that. You know, at the Square One Men's Fellowship, which meets, by the way, on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m. down in the gathering hall. It's a great time. We have, we have breakfast. We, we study God's word together. We encourage one another. Great time of fellowship. Um, here are a few things that we learned when we gathered to read and study the book of Acts. See, if you look closely enough, you can see that it is actually the Holy Spirit who's empowered his apostles to build the church, building the church throughout the entire book, throughout Paul's entire journey, throughout Peter's entire journey, Throughout all the book of of Acts, you see how the Holy Spirit has empowered his disciples, his apostles, to build the church, to see it grow. And to see it expand as it goes beyond the Jews, but to the ends of, figuratively speaking, to the ends of the earth when Paul gets to Rome. The church began growing with believers, confessing like Peter did in our passage in in Matthew. And if you look closely in Acts, you see this similar expression of that growth. In in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 Shortly after Peter finishes proclaiming the good news uh, on the day of Pentecost, we, we hear these words. Luke records these words for us. He says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added about uh, that day about 3,000 souls. <laughs> 3,000 souls. I remember when I was younger, I had hamsters, and my, my first experience of having hamsters was a little bit surprising like that. I'm not sure they anticipated 3,000 souls. Well, with me, with hamsters, I, I had my own surprises there. You can imagine as a young boy my surprise when my hamsters had babies. And, and not just a baby, they had lots of babies. It was a surprising moment for me. I, I was caught off guard. But here's a question for us. Do you believe do you believe that God can still do the work of building his church in such a surprising way? Do you think that that story that was recorded in Acts could still happen today? That God could still do a surprising work in his church? That he can draw 3,000 souls to him in such a surprising and wonderful way? See, I think empowered by the Holy Spirit, God living in us day to day, and Peter and the apostles' faithfulness to Proclaim Jesus' words and the teaching of scriptures, the church begins to grow. This was all a work of the Holy Spirit through the people of the church, through his church, through Peter, through Paul, through Barnabas, through John Mark, through Stephen, through Philip, through through Cornelius and other Gentiles, through a Gentile woman named Lydia. Through a Roman jailer. It just keeps going and going beyond the pages of the book of Acts, to be honest. So, what do you think, church? Would our names be added to that list? Would we see that the gospel continues to go forth through Trinity Baptist Church? Do we consider it a non negotiable absolute that Jesus wants to work in and through our lives to expand his church? Well, he certainly did it first and foremost through the lives of his apostles. It's Jesus who builds his church, but he chooses to use people to, to do his work through, starting with the apostles and then generation after generation beyond that. See, the church isn't just a universal assembly across time and geography of, of, Jesus, of disciples of Jesus. It's also built by Jesus through those disciples, Church, this is why we exist. Trinity exists to lead people back to God through Jesus Christ and build them up as God-first believers. It's why we're here. If we believe that the church exists for our own benefit, then we need to do some serious inward reflection. If we think that this building, this gathering of people is here for our own benefit and not, not also for the benefit of others, then we need to do some reflection. Jesus said in Luke 5, "Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Church, if we truly share in the work with Jesus and love the things that Jesus loves, then we should be running to the sick. I've heard a lot of people like in the church to be more of a hospital full of sick people. And if that's true, then where in the church is the spiritual emergency room? Where in the church is the spiritual triage area? Where do we listen to people in pain and lift them up in prayer? Each Sunday morning off to my left, your right, there are volunteers who gather to offer a time for you to speak and and for them to listen and then to pray with you. Every Wednesday morning we have a team of volunteers who gather in in the the conference room on Wednesday morning to, to lift up, before the Lord the the prayer requests that come in every Sunday morning and throughout the week. But you know what? We can do more. It shouldn't satisfy us that, that there are people to take care of that need. Every person has a role to play in the building up of Jesus's church. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not have all the same function, so though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. See, we each serve a unique purpose in the life of the church. And that purpose is for the building up of the body of believers and for the expansion of that body of believers to grow. Do you know something I learned a little bit uh, this, about this year is that we live in an area of the country made up of only one to two percent of Jesus-confessing, Bible-believing Christians. One to two percent. That means that roughly 98% of New England is standing outside the doors of the church, knocking at the door, waiting to be let in to allow the Lord to triage their hearts and their minds. The church, guys, is a non-negotiable absolute. It's not a solo sport. We need each other. We're better together when we, when we link arms, when we stand up together, when we preach the word of God, when we, when we give witness to what Jesus has done in our lives, when we, when we live the hearts of Jesus out in this world. Our ministries are not meant for our own fun or relaxation. They're, they're places where we grow and mature, where we're built up and then, and then sent out. So where are you plugged into the church? Are you plugged into the church? If not, we need you. God wants to work through you, in you and through you, to see others enjoy the love that God has for them in Jesus Christ. To to no longer be orphans, but to be considered one of the children of God. Church, we have a purpose together. Accomplishing that purpose is not without its challenges. I know that it's easy for me to stand up here on Sunday morning and talk about how we need to do our part to reach the 98% in New England. But here's what I'd say. It's not easy. Jesus himself said that in this world you're going to have many troubles, but he also said this, take heart for I have overcome this world. For the early church, they faced persecutions of their own. They were stoned to death. Beaten, unfairly prosecuted and persecuted. And as the church scattered away from that persecution, guess what? They carried the most important thing with them, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the church grew. We are a body of believers, a great assembly of disciples of Jesus Christ facing a significant challenge together. And so as we close our time together, I I just want us to hear Jesus' promise. The promise that God revealed to Daniel back in chapter 7, and I think the promise that Jesus affirms for us here in Matthew chapter 16. See, Jesus promises that the gates of hell, death, will not prevail. The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself, and as such, he's defeated death on the cross what I like to envision is this water balloon that you filled to, to overflow you're, almost, you're afraid it's going to burst at some point. But the promise is that that balloon will not burst. God has confined death to hell. It, is no, it no longer has power over his church. No matter how hard hell tries to, to, to burst out of those gates and advance on the church, he has made a promise. The church that Jesus established Will remain until Jesus returns. Hell will not overcome it. no matter how bleak or, or difficult the circumstances may be. Death is trapped behind the gates of hell, and no matter how hard it tries to advance on the Church of this world, it cannot overcome the church. It cannot overcome this universal assembly of believers united in Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, the Christ, the Messiah the Son of Man, the Lamb of God. No matter how lost this world may seem, we the church will remain until Jesus returns and we meet him as a bride unites with her bridegroom. This is why we believe that the church is a non-negotiable absolute. This is why this will never change for us. We will live and breathe by this truth. The church is not ours. It's Jesus's. And we're fellow members of that, that church with him. So as we close our time, before I pray, I want us to read a passage of Scripture together. And in fact, I'm I'm at the risk of making us feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'd invite you to stand as we recite this passage of Scripture together. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. And I want us to say this together as as a confession. If you feel like you're not in that place where you can confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, that he is your Savior... Don't feel like you need to read these verses with us, and it's okay. There will be no judgment. I'm the only one that can see out and see who's saying and who's not. But if you feel confident that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then I'd encourage you to read these verses from Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Let's say it together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. More so, Lord, I thank you for your promises that are found in your word, that you have chosen to reveal them to us. Lord, thank you for Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins, but also the sins of the world. Lord, I pray that we would see this new covenant that you've established, that we would see that we are a part of a universal assembly of believers in Jesus Christ, that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow in Christlikeness and to hear the commission that you gave your disciples so long ago as a commission to us, Lord, to go and make disciples of the nations. To be a witness for Jesus, first in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Lord, empower us to do this very, this very real and, and, and overwhelming truth at times. Lord, to, to live it out before you. Thank you for your church. Thank you that we are no longer orphans but children of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated, and as you take a seat, um, it is. Uh,